Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. So this episode is a little different as we don't have an interviewee today, but we do have some conversation. And with me, I have two of our associate editors, Nada Khan and Tom Round. Uh, We do also have a third associate editor, Sam Merriel, but he couldn't quite make it this week with the way the timings worked out, but we certainly hope to have him with us uh, for the next time. So we're recording this just as the February issue of the BJGP has come out, and we're going to talk through um, some of the articles in the new issue. Uh, Some of the issues, we'll have a little bit of a news, and we'll just have a bit of a catch-up as well to find out how we all are. So um, I maybe ought to go to Tom and Nada first and say hello. So how how are you all getting on? How how are you finding practice at the moment? Maybe Tom. Hi, Ewan. Hi, nice to speak to you. Yes, I guess, um, like everyone, it's keeping your head down, just keeping going. Another lockdown, another year. <laughs> it's just amazing to look back on stuff we were doing a year ago. Wow, how this year's flown by. Um, but I think, yeah, just looking forward, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit today about the vaccination programme. That's something to be proud of, I think. You know, primary care, give us the tools and the resources and we can deliver. Yeah. You should tell us where you're based, Tom. Um, sorry, yeah, I'm based in East London, Tower Hamlets. So kind of in the centre of the COVID London storm. So our local hospital is Barts in the London, well, London, which a lot of you have seen on the news, uh, where they've literally taken the, turned the entire hospital into a COVID hospital, massively expended ICU capacity. Um, And, you know, it really has impacted on us in primary care. So um, as an example, we can't do any routine imaging at the moment, ultrasounds all postponed. There's no referrals like everywhere else. We can't do any routine referrals. And actually we're now doing some of the hospital's bloods for them. And, and GPs are actually going into the hospital and we're helping with discharges. So really, actually, we're totally involved in that. And, you know, we're, we're, we're GPs are uh, involved in the whole COVID uh, response in East London. Interesting. There's sort of some of the breakdown of what were regarded as primary care or secondary care responsibilities getting kind of reshaped a little in the middle of the pandemic. It just goes to show that many of them are a little bit artificial uh, in Absolutely. some ways. And we, we cleave to them very... Um, very firmly. We should go up to you, Nada. Tell us where you are. You're a little bit further north, of course. Yeah. So, uh, hi, Ewan. Hi, Tom. I'm based up in Leeds and um, I'm based at the University of Leeds and also at a practice in Seacroft in Leeds. Um, yeah, things have been okay for me. I'm, I've actually stepped out of practice for six months, but I'm going back on Thursday. So, tomorrow for my first clinical day in six months. So, it's going to be interesting to see what has changed in that six month interval from last August in terms of um, how the practice is coping with changes during this entire pandemic. Um, I feel that from March to August, we had to do a lot of adapting, a lot of changing, and it will, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things have settled or how things have ramped up or changed during that brief window where I haven't been working there. I think that, as Tom alluded to, one of the biggest things that we should be proud of is vaccination campaign in primary care. Um, From experience, I know that our own primary care network has rolled out a really effective vaccination campaign covering the acute trust at the two major hospitals here in Leeds and um, uh, elderly patients at a lot of the healthcare force in Leeds. So I think that's something to really be proud of and um, something we should look forward to. Um, ramping up in the next few months as we try to get the rest of the population vaccinated. Yeah, um, there's been some really good publicity around this, I think, and a recognition that 
the vaccine program is obviously going really well at the moment in the UK and GPs are playing an enormous role in that. At least I think there's been some good publicity. I'm slightly aware that I am maybe relying on my Twitter feed, which of course could be mm. um, highly biased. Well, we had a paper just recently in the BJGP, of course, from Trish Greenhouse and Gillian Ross about um, uh, the media depictions of remote consultation. So that's perhaps been the, one of the biggest ways that the press has been looking at what GPs do. They had really interesting findings about how um, it was very much split into two phases. And, you know, that was right up until the end of, we're in a third phase, if you like, in many ways of that, about that wholesale move. And some of the depictions around general practice have been, we've known they've been very negative in the past and they weren't always getting credit. GPs weren't getting credit for the work in and around remote consultations either in this past year. But I've, I kind of feel that that maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just eternally optimistic, but I feel a little bit like, there has been a recognition of that with the vaccination program. I would agree with you there, you. And of course, that paper was really interesting. And, and I sort of was the editor involved with that, that Trish Greenhouse paper with the team there in Oxford, looking at the media depiction. And you know, we've really felt it. You know, we've 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 um, certainly felt a sort of a, a, the, the particularly certain elements of the press attacking primary care sh for shifting to this safer model and of, of delivery. Uh, and we are, you know, actually the data doesn't bear out that criticism because the NHS digital data shows that. 40 to 50% of people are still being seen face to face, but we're using new triage models to appropriately and safely see patients. Uh, it's just the fact we don't want people sat in busy, crowded waiting rooms spreading COVID. Um, and I think that is a challenge to some patients. Uh, and obviously, we've got, got to make sure that we, we, we don't have, um, sort of digital first doesn't exclude some of our more um, either deprived or older populations. And certainly I have felt the, the change in the in the media with the vaccination program, something to, we can be potentially proud of. I know the government is taking a lot of credit for that, but give us the tools, we will deliver. I think that's the message. The key thing at the moment is the vaccine supply. Yeah. Yeah, we've certainly seen that. Um, we've certainly experienced that up here. I'm up in the northwest um, as well. And there's definitely had to be a bit of a pause. Um, they've just delivered what they've had almost too quickly. And I know there's been some redistribution, but overall going well. So um, looking at the February issue, and now it has just arrived on our own doorsteps. I think um, myself and Nada are pretty much picking it off the doorstep just before um, we've come online just now. Uh, and the theme for this month is mental health. We've got a few papers to talk about. Um first thing I would say is um, we, of course, we are getting our print copy. So it's really important for those people that haven't realised and might be listening that we don't automatically send out print copies of the BJGP now. Um, all the content is still available online and you can read it on it in a digital format as well um, if you log into the RCGP members area. But if you um, want to um, get a print copy uh, and you still enjoy sitting down with a coffee, reading it and flicking through, then you'll need to opt in. Um, and I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can, um, if you're a person who's keen to get it and realise that you've not had it for the past few months, then you'll be able to um, get a hold of a print copy and we're very happy to send it out. Um, but for... Um, you know, for various reasons, environmental and financial in this past year, uh, we have moved to the model of opting in. So um, so um, we should start talking about a few of the papers in these uh, editorials and articles in this month, just to go over a few highlights. Uh, and I know that Nada and Tom, you've, um, you've got your own ideas of what, um, what ones, which articles you've particularly enjoyed this month. So maybe Tom, we'll start with you. What, have you, what would you flag? 
Yeah, so obviously we'll, we'll be touching on COVID. I think Nada's uh, and you will be looking at we've sort of touched on vaccine programs. So that's really interesting. We'll come back to that. I was also to sort of flag up here um, one of the Life and Times articles, which is from Greg Irving, who's a colleague, uh, senior lecturer at Edge Hill. And he's done some research. He actually published in BMJ a couple of years ago a systematic review of the literature around consultation length and that got a bit of quite a bit of publicity actually it showed that uh, gps in the uk have one of the lowest consultation lengths in the developed world and i'm sure we all feel that you know sort of um before covid we were having this sort of treadmill of some 40 plus consultations a day in these 10 minute slots i mean i don't know how, how you guys felt about it but i would often run 20 30 minutes. i had to have a built-in break to make sure i should catch up because by the end of a sort of 10 consultations, I'll be 20, 30 minutes running over. And my patients knew that because I wouldn't sort of rush them and take the time. So this kind of thing about where this 10 minutes has come from, the sort of challenge of that. And the challenge in this article is around the MRC GP. And of course, with COVID, that's moved away from CSA to what's called the recorded consultation assessment. And it'd be really interesting to see um, around how this, the, the sort of data around this assessment, and this is having still a 10 minute, a bit like the CSA was. So CSA was a clinical skills examination, part of MRCGP, which has been around for more than 10 years. So this has moved to the, um, the online portal, but again, a 10 minute, each patient would be coming in a 10 minute slot. And really the challenge to us about actually, is this correct way of examining? It's a really interesting question. Um, should there be more flexibility around that? You know, the 10 minute, yes, it can be standardized, but does this reflect general practice at the moment and where, we'll, where we will be with, you know, we talk about post-COVID, but actually it's coping with COVID. I, I think, you know, some of these changes are going to be embedded into practice. So really there's loads of questions from this paper that really kind of got my thought processes working. Um, just as a personal reflection, I actually quite like the, I think it, um, and I was, uh, interested in Trish Greenhalgh's reflection, I was on a recent SAPC call, that actually telephone triage, if you know your patients pretty well, you can actually do that really effectively and well, because you know the history, you know your patients well, you've got the continuity of care. So actually, she actually they found from research, actually patients like telephone, actually prefer it to video, because they feel it's actually more intimate, especially if they know the doctor. And it gives you the flexibility of, I can do a five minute call with a patient I know really well versus if I've got someone who's depressed, a new patient, I can have that flexibility to do 20 minutes, maybe a bit longer in, in complex comorbidity. So it's just a really interesting question and challenge to us in, in general practice, where we are now, where we see ourselves in a few years time as well. Yeah, the, um, oh gosh, well, I mean, yeah, hold my beer. I've got a few comments about um, <laughs> <laughs> 10 minute consultation as standard. <laughs> But um, we don't. We haven't got that long in the podcast, so we won't get too carried away. I, it, I will summarise. This is a really interesting article, and actually, Greg and his colleagues sent it in as a letter initially, and we, um, I fished it out and actually got them to uh, submit it as a slightly longer version right. as an article because I think it was a, I think it's such an important topic. It still astonishes me that we have ten minutes as standard. I mean, we're we're so clearly behind the curve on this, and you look at morbidity. And we had a recent paper as well, who's, um, I'll have to check the authors in a second to remind myself about showing uh, that um, areas of deprivation are getting even less time than um, just published in the BJGP, even less time than the 10 minutes. So I don't know how we can possibly think we can cope. I think it's terrible for patients. I think it's terrible for doctors as well. You know, I just think it is we haven't got a hope of fixing the longer term problems with GP burnout 
or uh, you know how we perceive ourselves and you know how we cope with our workloads until we address this and i think the slightly frust- the thing that frustrates me ever so slightly is it's almost entirely within our own gift in some ways the way that practices are organized and a lot of practices have moved to 15 minutes of course because that's just a i mean i think that's just an acceptance of the reality of the situation that in fact you were spending more or less 15 minutes anyway so you may as well just restructure your appointment system but we we could push it further we could as a profession as a general as general practitioners as practices keep moving keep pushing it but it's very hard to do at an individual level it needs a kind of um it needs a whole collective action for everybody to do it at the same time because we'd have to work very hard not to to ensure there weren't knock-on effects to more disadvantaged groups because appointments would become less available. We'd also have to ride a, an initial storm, particularly of people not having access for, you know, you know, can't get appointment with your GP for two weeks is already a kind of a, you know, a standard complaint and something that people get really upset about. I, I really think we should, you know, we should be, everywhere I go, I read about this. People are upset about how little time we have they don't think it's adequate there are probably savings in having longer consultation times anyway so it's not an absolute rise but we um yeah we really ought to be pushing on with this it feels like this is a long overdue change but i mean this is obviously a very specific aspect in and around mrcgp um that greg and his colleagues have written about but um uh, that just goes to show how ingrained it is that you know that we're now assessing based on that kind of ten-minute recorded yeah. consultation as well. That it's, it seems so difficult for us to move on from it. Which actually probably it should be uh, the patient doctor comes together something five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen, twenty. You know, actually it's that flexibility for us and the patient as well. Yeah, interesting. I think someone did a trial, right? I'm, I'm just sort of having a reflection here in the very back of my mind. Someone did a trial of giving patients the option of five, ten. 15 minutes I try, they're probably all banked <laughs> i try to think they all select all the 10 minute appointments but the, i think the nice thing you know from covid just pushed us all to, to do more triage and online so the strengths and you know there's strengths and opportunities of, of those different models but actually being able to be a bit more um flexible in that time and not being on a sort of treadmill i think is is really helpful we should we should hold on to that yeah what are you on that are you on 10 minutes 15 minutes 12 there's some, some funny hybrid no, yeah, we're on 10 minutes, um, but I'm thinking about this uh, particular piece more in terms of my perspective as a trainee, actually. So I'm coming up to, you know, my CSA slash RCA exam. And I, I think it's potentially a missed opportunity if there aren't changes in how the RCA is examined. Um, I think one of the quotes from this paper is really helpful you know asking candidates to focus on one problem only creates an artificial scenario i mean we're talking about real life patients here this isn't um exam type settings in 30 Euston square where patients are you know simulated patients this is real life so i i I think that it's a bit artificial to try to stick real life into an examination bubble and say that this needs to be a 10 minute recorded consultation for assessment and I think it's perhaps sending the wrong messages to trainees about what's important in, you know, being a good GP, really. So I think that Gregor Irving has has a really good point here. And perhaps that this is an opportunity as we're moving forward and thinking about how we're going to examine GPs for MRCGP to maybe make a change. I think that that's a valid point. 
Yeah, um, it really reminds me of the old days. Um, I'm I'm not sure you two won't be uh, not senior enough, but when we had to record a video of I think it was ten consultations, and you had your two VCRs next to each other to recording video to video, it was it's so ridiculously. It seems so that was only 2003, 17 years ago, and it was like a world apart. But you had a very artificial scenario where you had to pick out consultations which matched the exam assessment criteria as well. So it was a it was I, I know it you know I wasn't a trainer or an examiner at that point and i think there were there was probably much validity in what they did but there were a lot of knock-on effects as well and this seems like there's some opportunities here for a more um you know a more nuanced or a kind of a more radical way to go about doing these assessments too okay so we'll we'll move on nada what have you got for us that you'd like to flag yeah i thought one of the interesting papers that I picked out of this uh, month's issue was the Identifying Patients at Risk of Psychosis paper that came from the University of Bristol. Um, I just thought that this was a really fascinating paper looking at how GPs ask, inquire about um, psychotic experiences amongst patients who are presenting with depression or anxiety or other mental health presentations. And what the authors say is that even in patients who have um, sort of early psychotic experiences, for instance, hearing voices or paranoid thoughts that wouldn't potentially fit the criteria for a full-fledged episode of psychosis. Those patients, um, one-third of them are at risk of developing a psychotic episode within three years. So that says to me that this is an important area that GPs need to be aware of. However, some GPs might not be fishing out these experiences to the best of their ability, for instance. So I think for me, the take-home message from this paper was that GPs need to think about routinely screening people with depression, anxiety, and mental health issues for early psychotic symptoms. And it's thinking about how we ask those questions. And again, if we're coming back to a 10-minute consultation, how do we fit these in, Mm. these quite challenging consultations, you know, where you're trying to cover a lot of different psychosocial issues, mental health risk, remembering to ask about these psychotic experiences that you can put in place early interventions to help this population. So, yeah, I thought it was just an interesting paper to flag up for an at-risk population. And you know that early intervention can be helpful in this population as well. Yeah, so um, I think it's a good paper in that it, it could change your practice a little, this one. I think it's just got yeah. that kind of potential and that the best qualitative studies, I think, are like that, that they can, you could, it's easy to imagine yourself in a consultation and just doing things a little bit differently when you read around this one. And um, I had a chat to Daniela and Stan Zamet um, on, the pod, on the podcast for this as well when we talked about this, um, about their paper in a little bit more depth. And they were very... Um, they were, you know, they were great and they were very much, but they were very keen not to avoid and they steered around the, you know, GPs are ideally placed or, you know, GPs need more education tropes that we hear so often. And just to sort of point out a few ways we could do more. I, I think it's the kind of thing that I would steer slightly away from the routinely screening thing because I think there's such big mm. consult, there's such big difficult consultations anyway, new presentations. But I think it's about really having fine tuning your antennae for when you kind of you get something which is a bit odd that the patient says or you hear something which is a bit unusual because a lot of people with these who are at risk of psychosis, they will have pre-existing depression or anxiety. And then if you get something which just seems just not quite seems a little bit jarring to actually have it or doesn't quite just sets off a little having it in your head that actually maybe this is a person at risk of psychosis. 
Mm. And then trying to find the time to explore. It might be a little bit too laborious to do it uh, every single time um, that you have those kind of consultations. And there, there may be time limitations, uh, you know, time constraints in doing that. But I think particularly if you get someone who just says something a bit odd or perhaps someone who's particularly got severe symptoms, you know, particularly severe depression, actually just exploring some potentially psychotic symptoms around that would be, be really valuable. One of the things they did point out in the study was that it is a bit variable across the country, um, the provision of services for early intervention in psychosis. Now, yeah. where they are has got good services, and I know that we've got a service locally to where we are, uh, but not every single GP in the country will have access to an early intervention in psychosis team. But I thought it was a really nice paper that just highlighted a really interesting little way to do these kind of consultations a little bit better uh, and give a great deal of satisfaction in helping managing this group of patients. I think you're right. It's just about adding a few extra questions. So I think this kind of paper is, as you say, really good about maybe challenging how we practice and offering simple solutions for how we can slightly change things, add an extra question or two, and those extra few questions could actually have a large clinical benefit. Yeah. Tom, what are your thoughts? Uh, oh, no, absolutely. So you think about sort of serious mental illness, psychosis, that 1% of the population, isn't it? And it's 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 fairly easy once they're diagnosed with schizophrenia or you've got that sort of code, you kind of know to sort of check those questions. The challenge is when people are first presenting. And we, as GPs primary care, we will be the first point of call for many of these consultations unless someone's floridly psychotic or sectioned or unwell. So um, I kind of reflect back to some of the challenging consultations I had. I had a young man come in who actually came in with ear pain and it just didn't, as Ewan said, it just didn't feel right. He just sent, he was... Um, that's back in the days we actually saw people we, we were examining face to face, but he was very reluctant for me to go near him or touch him or examine. You know, someone coming with an ear pain, you'd expect they want the doctor to look in their ear. And he just didn't. So I just said, is there something wrong or worrying? Or it's that kind of gut feeling that kind of that sort of packing recognition, something just doesn't fit here. So his actual presentation of ear pain led me then to find out that he was floridly psychotic. Uh, and it actually turned out that he had schizophrenia. I guess a good question I always think about is actually in your mental patients presenting with um, potential me uh, mental health symptoms is anything that's happened that you're worried about or you can't explain or, you know, funny things that have like, funny experiences or worrying experiences happening to you. And that's kind of a very open-ended thing that lets people kind of share things if they trust you. And I think continuity of care is so important here is something really important to have that trusting relationship where people feel they can trust to share with you. Yeah, I think, um, I think continuity of care came up in the conversation in the podcast and length of consultation, they're probably the two big things we'll just keep coming back to again and again and again in general practice. Um, okay, well, so we'll move on. I want to raise, well, I, I think I'm going to raise the editorials that we had in this month's um, issue um, because um, we can't talk about all of them, but the um, there were just three, but I think they were all really important in their own way. And um, first of all, there was a Leeds-based one um, about prison um, primary care and I'll just say quickly about that I think it's well worth a read and you know it's not all it's prison primary care isn't all just about the sort of people with special interest in it and actually delivering healthcare in prison so that's incredibly important as well there are there are, of course people who have been in prison come out again and they need primary care in the community so and that's well worth a read and a generally a neglected area and a neglected group as well um, but I'll go on to the other editorials and the one perhaps that's really um, uh, the the uh, um, topic of the moment is about vaccination uh, and we did have an editorial this month from um, Anthony Harden, Harden who was the lead um, author and he's the um, uh, he's I think the deputy chair 
of the uh, the Joint Committee um, of for Vaccination on Vaccination and Immunisation, the JCVI, who um, uh, everyone's suddenly become very aware of, obviously, in the past couple of months. And um, I think he is a professor of primary care, Anthony. And I think it's really important that... Um, I would I would say that's really important that this the whole thing about this editorial is that it was just the JCVI have recognised early the importance of reaching out to primary care and to GPs, and that's already been borne out as we've discussed in the vaccination program. But they were particularly keen to make sure that actually they you know they had um, some of their communications um, were with GPs and that they were having a conversation with us. Um, one of the things that we did flag in this editorial when it came through was actually they didn't mention about the um, uh, uh, the evidence around uh, delaying the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine in particular. And that remains something of a hot topic um, in the community. I haven't seen so much in recent days in the media. Um, my understanding is there is some emerging evidence that would suggest some delay might be useful with the Pfizer one and actually will improve immune response. I've yet to see that published anywhere yet, but I, I maybe, I don't know if either of you two had, but that's, we, we're kind of waiting really for that information. At the moment, there are an awful lot of gaps in knowledge around vaccines, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's sort of, you know, there's big discussion in the media and within primary care and BMA getting involved and actually what's the sort of policy going on best available evidence and the finite resource about sort of in a way it's rationing and how do we get the most bang for our buck and most most jabbed people and get most benefit and in this sort of get us, you know, the route out of this crisis to a certain degree. So, yeah, absolutely, it's nuanced evidence. But I, I, in terms of Oxford, it's really interesting just today, early February, that um, it was sort of headlined that Oxford have shown that a sort of delay of up to 12, 14 weeks is actually beneficial and you get um, better impact for doing that. So that's really interesting data that's kind of supporting this, what would seem a pragmatic approach. Maybe not all the evidence is there. And, you know, there was pushback from... Um, sorry, push back to from Pfizer on the delay, saying that they did, it wasn't in the tr sort of trial. And also, you know, there's an ethical dilemma of people being vaccinated initially, being told you'd have your vaccine at three weeks, and then saying, no, you're going to have a 12-week delay. So there's kind of a whole heap of politics, practice, ethics into this mix. But we're kind of navigating and finding our best, best available <laughs> way to go ahead and have practice evidence-based policymaking in this area. Yeah. Um, nada. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that, you know, if it is an issue about following the evidence, then, you know, I was very reluctant about, you know, delays in giving the Pfizer vaccine. And I think there's been a, a real split down um, practitioners and policymakers about what the right thing to do is. And probably the right thing is, is that we don't really know. And it's about navigating, a, you know, a fast evolving area where new evidence is probably likely to be made public, you know, in the next month or so about what the right delay is or if a delay is right. Um, so it's really tricky, I think, topic. And I know that it's really pulled on people's heartstrings, especially as Tom has mentioned about people who are expecting second doses so that they could feel protected not being off of that anymore. So, yeah, I think... Um, we don't really have much more to say about that, except that I know that it's just something that's been a real, real difficult struggle. And I'm, I'm not really sure where my opinion lies. And I think that's because I, I don't really know where the evidence is. So I, guess <laughs> I, I guess in a way it's a slight punt, but whether the punt plays off, you know, actually they're yeah. actually taking a pragmatic approach to this, but whether this might actually end up, end up paying off. You know, we're looking at sort of, I think it's now early February, so we're up to sort of 10 million, I think, 
vaccinated. So we're getting, you know, hopefully we're getting close to getting the sort of target groups, which are the most, you know, the, mo- the most at risk of death. Yeah. I I, I, that, I, yeah, go sorry. on, Nada. I mean, the thing that I was thinking of, I mean, are we doing any harm by delaying it? So I'm not, sh- I don't think we are doing harm necessarily by delaying it. And there is emerging evidence and evidence from, you know, other vaccine campaigns that actually delayed dose is probably beneficial. So I think that's probably where my gut feeling would go is that we're not doing any harm necessarily by delaying a second dose. So yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll see what comes out when um, there's more trial data and more real world data about what the actual evidence is. Yeah, there's fairly sound immunological kind of historical data that delay tends to be a will tend to be a positive thing rather than a negative thing. So it's, the harms aren't entirely obvious, are they? One of the, the statistics that jumped out with me is that obviously some of the modelling they've done, that if they, that they quote in the editorial, that is they, they gave a million, one million extra first dose vaccines, particularly in the higher risk groups, they've modelled that that could potentially save something, um, you know, like 3,000 to 4,000 deaths in that age group. So the mm-hmm. fact that we've now got there with these high risk groups have been done so quickly across the board with first doses, you know, we'll, as you say, the, 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 we'll all, it'll all come out in the reckoning, but I, I it seems... I guess it's a slight, slight tension between you as an individual, so it's that kind of individual thing going, my protections may be 80 plus percent, and then this could push me over to 90 plus percent. So it's that kind of individual thing saying, oh, I get maybe that little bit of extra protection myself as an individual, versus actually getting that population sort of wide coverage, and that sort of slight tension there between that individual and the ethics and consent versus the population, and the aim for whatever sense of herd immunity we can get if we can keep playing catch up with variants i'm sure we'll come back to this topic again and again yeah i mean that's always that's always attention isn't it public health and vaccines are the absolute kind of focus of those that individual versus public benefit there's a brilliant book i recommend this is called um on immunity by um eula bliss I think I've quoted it in the past on some in briefings or other bits and pieces. And that's a really interesting book, which explores that in some depth. It's not your typical sort of sciencey book. I find it really fascinating because that's the kind of at the nub of this kind of ethical dilemma as well. And it's worth pointing out that actually Prof David Misselbrook, our senior research ethics advisor, uh, senior ethics advisor for the journal uh, and currently deputy editor over at BJGP Life just now wrote an article in this month's Life and Times section as well on how vaccinations are a bit of a modern twist on the trolley, that classic trolley problem in ethics as well. So that's well worth a read too. Yeah, that was really interesting actually. He's talking about the 15 minute wait, isn't he, after vaccination and that we're asking clinicians or asking vaccine hubs to get patients to wait for 15 minutes, but actually that's limiting the number of people that can come through the vaccine. <laughs> so what's the ethical balance? You know, there might be a few p- people who have a, a, you know, a very small number of people who have an anaphylactic reaction, but actually are you, would you save more lives by vaccinating more people quicker? But this may not be an issue with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So perhaps, you know, yeah. if, People don't have to wait for 15 minutes after that job then. Yeah, it was a very Pfizer-specific one, wasn't it, because yes, of that absolutely. time period? There, there was a, an interesting question came up, actually, to Simon Stevens. Actually, we're, if we're thinking about actually we're going to have the whole population contacted by a healthcare professional, actually, could we then also tag on some other public health-type things onto this vaccination programme? Because potentially we're getting to high-risk people who don't attend. Oh, no, Tom. <laughs> Stop smoking. <laughs> this is a question that came out, sort of actually... Could we use this for other things as well? But I mean, that's a 
that's another broader question really yeah a little bit of smoking cessation advice or reduce your alcohol <laughs> or, you know it only have to have a tiny effect and it would have a massive overall just jab, you know you could you could jab, jab yeah. people and just talk about their lifestyle yeah we won't we'll, we'll avoid we're definitely getting some ethical concerns here so we won't go there let's well we better i'm aware time is marching on one thing i do want to say that now we've mentioned david over at bjgp life that um as uh, listeners will know, we've got a thriving life and time section in the BJGP. Um, and um, But we now uh, accept all our articles for BJGP for life and time. So they come through BJGP Life first. So if you go to bjgplife.com, there's lots of articles on there, lots of these viewpoints, opinions, reviews, book reviews. And um, they all go on there first, and then we select from there for the journal. So if you're interested in writing for that section of the BJGP, um, go over to bjgplife.com. Uh, there's a contribute tab at the top as well if you want to find out what kind of articles work, and you can submit via there as well. You don't have to submit via the sort of the, the portal on bjgp.org where the research um, has typically come through, and you can go straight to BJGP Life. Um, I think we'll just wrap up perhaps by mentioning the other editorial, which is about long COVID um, from um, Helen Atherton, Tracy Briggs and um, Carolyn Chu Graham. Um, and um, we perhaps won't spend too much time on this as we're um, time is marching on. But um, I think, um, again, I really, you know, well, we, we, you know, two years ago, of course, this wasn't a thing um, but, and a massive emerging topic gets a lot of media coverage as well. Um, and, you know, uh, some controversial areas in and around this too, potentially um, for GPs to manage when it comes to helping people with um, uh, long COVID or post-COVID symptoms or whatever we want to call it. Long COVID seems to be the standard name that's used in the popular press, though I don't think um, NICE are not referring to it as long COVID just yet. At least they weren't in their uh, scoping guidance that came out in December. Uh, the quote for this perhaps is something which... I think is important, but I wouldn't, um, I, I, I mean, I don't, I feel reasonably confident GPs treat less. The, the most important thing is that patients presenting like this have their symptoms taken seriously um, and are not dismissed as being due to anxiety um, and also emphasising the importance of the right GP. That's obviously particularly important advice for long COVID, but it seems like pretty good advice for almost any medical condition at all anywhere. So, um uh, but in this case, it's going to be particularly valuable. Any thoughts on the on long COVID? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting area because it, it is an emerging disease, isn't it? So I think that over the course of the last year, you know, if you had people coming to you perhaps in April last year, as a GP, you might not be familiar with the presentation of this and you might be a bit baffled as to what's happening. And I think there is probably a bit greater awareness about this now. But what's still unclear is, I think, how to manage patients like this. There, there was talk about setting up long COVID clinics, but I don't think that's really happened as perhaps it was first envisaged. And I think patients are getting maybe triage to specialty specific clinics like respiratory cardiology instead, depending on their main symptoms. So I think one of the interesting things about this is that it is an emerging condition. And I think that because of that, we've been playing catch up a bit about how to recognize it, how best to triage patients, where people should go, what the best therapies for it for, for, for this is. And I think it's just going to be an evolving area, but I think you've hit the nail on the head, you and I think it's about recognizing that this is a disease entity and that people should be taken seriously. And probably that's one of the most important things that you, you can do as a GP is recognise that these symptoms are real. Yeah. 
Any thoughts, Tom? No, I, I agree on that reflection. Evolving area, we need more data and evidence, obviously, and more research going into this area. Uh, we've got some helpful modules on the RCGP website, um, which go through some of these sort of topics and, 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 and help with the sort of CPD and e-learning on it. And, of course, we will be updating those as time goes on. Uh, you know, really important. It's the same sort of with anyone with lived experiences. We take the experience and the symptoms uh, we, ref we reflect on them and we acknowledge them. Uh, but it's just to say, you know, this does reflect also this sort of symptom iceberg as well, just how common sort of tiredness is or poor sleep or um, other symptoms. And actually, it's really, it's that kind of bit disentangling how much of that is a sort of, um, is a functional type symptom versus actually is a sort of, sort of patho anything pathological going on. And that's the skill of a good GP, really. It's like actually filtering out that symptom iceberg and working out what's kind of going on, supporting patients through that. Uh, and uh, we've thankfully got a long COVID clinic that's being set up, but I know there's sort of rollout across the country on, on, on supporting GPs and their teams. And I do think there's going to be a potential tsunami of, of this workload coming through as we kind of get through this sort of current nightmare scenario and actually start to rebuild what are things going to look like in six, 12 months, 18 months time um, to, to sort of primary care and the key role we play, play in the recovery. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's going to be a topic that's going to dominate our lives for professional, professional clinical lives for many, many years. And for those, for the patients as well, of course, who experience it, there's going to be an awful lot of work and a lot of need, it's going to need an incredible amount of investment in order to help GPs manage that at a time when workload for general practitioners and primary care in general is was already clearly absolutely um, maxed out um, to a massive extent. So we'll see what happens. Well, um, I think we'll draw a close there with the highlights. There was so much more. I'm just looking at the, I've got the journal open in front of me and there's so much more we could potentially talk about some great analysis articles on nudging and palliative care for veterans and some clinical practice articles as well as other life and times and some really good research as well. So um, I hope we can encourage folk to, to, you know, get into their issue and have a good read. Remember, you can sign up for that printed version if you want. But otherwise, I think, um, I think the th most thing to do is to say thank you, Tom. Thank you, Nada, very much for um, jumping on today. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. Thanks again.